Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. And this is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan, read the paper on Easter Sunday, April 12th, April 12th 2020. Yeah. We're in the, right in the middle, smack dab of Passover as well. Well, no, not smack dab. Yeah, Passover was uh, yesterday. Well, no, Passover is like eight days. Yeah, well, but you know. Okay, it started on Wednesday. Well, the, the big Passover celebration is behind us. But, uh, behind you. Yes. Okay. Uh, but Easter... And uh, you did make fabulous matzah this year. I did. Well, yes. It was you. getting acclaimed. Thank you very much. As Tamsin is uh, pointing out in her own fashion is that uh, she and I worked together on a recipe she pulled from the Times many years ago. And it turns out making matzah is pretty simple. Uh, it's just the flour, water, and oil. Uh, a little bit technique involved, which we won't get into right now, <laughs> but it only is in the oven at a very high heat for just a couple minutes, uh, and you're rewarded with uh, a flavorful, uh, superior product to what you buy in those boxes in the supermarkets. So, well, it's not rabbi-approved or anything. No. But it does taste better okay, than the cardboard. Just between you and me, rabbi <laughs> approval is a racket. Okay. Okay. That's a that's money right. changes hands. Oh. Okay. Mm. Yeah. There's been an antitrust case. Sorry about to that. hear that. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, but when you're gonna, for me, you only get the truth. But anyway, so here we are, Easter Sunday. And Easter Sunday is is a Easter is a checkered holiday. In our, uh, Nothing checkered now, about it. Chocolate Easter eggs for breakfast. No, but that's not one it. of the best holidays. The story of Easter in our family is that every Sunday, as the kids were growing up, it was pizza night. Yeah. Hey, let's not tell this story. I would go out and get the pizza, and uh, the pizza places were all closed on Easter. Right. And it would always cause an upset because we would lose track of that fact, and we would be caught short. Which is embarrassing, <laughs> because I was raised yeah, in no, the Presbyterian Church. It, I certainly know when Easter is. But it was is. my fault. I was in charge and of yet, pizza. I always forget. Yeah. Well, we... we uh, we would be outraged, like there was something wrong with the phone system or something. And then somebody would say, wait a minute, isn't this a holiday? Easter. Uh, anyway. Uh, yeah. <laughs> not not the brightest tool in the shed. Yeah, so we, sharpest tool in the shed. Right. Sharpest. <laughs> right. Got it. That too. So there was an article, I, I know you were going to comment in the Times. Um, Speaking of food. Virus related, which kind of stunned me when I saw it on the front page of today's New York Times. Well, you know, it's interesting. All these things we're learning. Yeah. As a result of uh, the restrictions. Right. Um, yeah, but this is, uh, well, you can just describe what's going on. Well, uh, the, this was on the front page of the New York Times. The title is Demand Veers and Farms Put Food to Waste. Right. Closing of restaurants and hotels take toll. In Wisconsin and Ohio, Farmers are dumping thousands of gallons of fresh milk into lagoons and manure pits. Yeah, which is shocking, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, an Idaho farmer dug ditches to bury one million pounds of onions. One million pounds of onions. Okay, and... Uh, down in Florida, they're plowing cabbage and uh, green beans back into the Right. They're getting rid earth. of eggs. They're flushing down milk. And, you know, this, of course, comes uh, against the backdrop that we read about uh, concerns about having enough food at food banks and the like. Will there be a food shortage? Will there be a uh, difficulty encountered by people who are hoarding ingredients because of lack of food? And here they're destroying food. Right. Well, you go to the grocery stores. There's no shortage of produce. Right. 
Okay. Of produce. That's the point. I guess, All right. right. So that's not the deal. Um, but uh, it turns out we're discovering just how much food, how much vegetables yeah. Americans consume, but not at home. Americans eat many more vegetables eating out than at home. Right. For instance. Well, but, but let me just stick one, one point in there. And the people who are destroying the food are people who distribute to restaurants. That's right. why they're destroying the food. Right. Yeah. Okay. And schools. And schools. Et cetera. Okay. Back to my buildup. Right. All right. People are eating. What kind of vegetables are they not eating? Well, like onion rings. Right. Nobody makes onion rings at home. Okay. You may roast up a few Brussels sprouts. But uh, so... Yeah, These but, uh, onions I, I, are I, I, not being purchased. even even green beans. They have a picture of someone plowing under green beans. Right. People eat green beans at restaurants, but they don't eat them at home. That's what they're saying. They're saying, as well, you were saying a moment ago, I guess so, that produce is sells yeah. to restaurants who prepare it, but doesn't sell to people in supermarkets, right. in, at least in the same volumes. Which is to me news. I didn't know that. You also, knew that. Apparently. Coffee shops and schools are closed. Right. And then, and the coffee coffee shops like Starbucks or whatever, use a lot of the milk. Right. So there is less demand for the milk. You're not making all those fabulous lattes at home, you know, uh, that you would be buying right. uh, out at the coffee shops. And, and, so, the, and the kids drink milk in the schools. Now, the kids are still going to drink milk wherever they are. But the problem in the distribution is that the road of distribution, the, the actual methods that are being used, the packaging that's being used, is geared toward the customer, the restaurants, and the schools in well, this case. Well, the bulk. Right. The bulk. It's so, easier so to that, see in terms of like the, the youngins are in 50-pound bags, yeah. right? So to retrofit the plant that bags these onions yeah. into even 8-pound bags is costly and time-consuming. Right. And, uh, you know, may not even happen in time for, you know, before... The uh, situation. Well, that's what they're saying. I mean, and resolves. the schools are the opposite size containers. You need small containers for the school milk, individual portions. And again, they're geared to do that, but you don't have the kids in school, right. so that just doesn't work. But I, but you put your finger on the key thing economically, which is that sure, you probably can make adjustments in distribution and in packaging to sort of rejigger things to put this food to some use. But it would require us an enormous investment. Yeah. And until and unless we know that this is a long-term situation, the investment's not warranted. Right. No one's going to make the investment. Now, what about charity? They, they try to give it to charity, but charity can take just so much. And it's and it's expensive to even distribute it to charities. Yeah. Well, it, the problem is it's fresh. Yeah. And so it has to be refrigerated yeah. and uh, you know, limited capacity. the food banks, etc., yeah. who need food, but there's only so much they can deal with that's fresh before it's uh, going to uh, go bad, etc. So that's that's shocking. Well, the um, only the only good thing about it is, yeah. uh, first of all, it's, it's a lesson in, in, in the significance of distribution in terms of production uh, and efficiency in the marketplace, how important distribution is. Right. Uh, and uh, number two, it, the sort of silver lining of all this is, and people who worry about food, and those are the people who are hoarding, if this were to be determined to be a six-month or eight-month process, there are ways to get that restaurant food back into the distribution system and right. get it to people. So right. you have that as a backup. Well, and there is the chance that if this, you know, some people are predicting this will be a recurring right. you can, situation. Maybe you'll have a long-term solution to make and, the redistribution. And develop some kind of flexibility. But it's just shocking to read this. But uh, I, I would like to say, yeah. food-wise, yeah. vegetable-wise, 
um, there was another headline, this in the Wall Street Journal, yeah. about cabbage is having a moment. Oh, really? Okay. Oh, we're eating cabbage. We're, and, which is really funny because we've been eating more cabbage yeah. than usual. And I'm not quite sure why that's happening, except it's a very durable, stable uh, food stuff to have around. You can keep it in your fridge for, I don't know, decades. Yeah. And uh, it's still pretty cookable. But, uh, you know, that's that's kind of interesting. Yeah, well, I am surprised because the stuff that we see uh, that's missing off the shelves is a lot of prepared foods, a lot of uh, processed foods. Uh, right. And as you said before, most of the produce is plentiful, widely available, which means it's not selling as much. As well, you know, it's foods. hard to buy sugar and flour. Yeah. So well, people, people are baking. People are making cookies. But they're not making Brussels sprouts. Apparently not. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Right. So, um, so we're learning, yeah, we're learning, learning about a people's lot. Habits, and yeah. uh, we'll see, uh, you know, we talked last week about how the grocery industry uh, changes and goes through these fluctuations. So now we're seeing even, you know, the farmers yeah. are going to be. Different kind of story. Yeah. Um, so we missed the NCAA tournament at times. No, we didn't miss it. Well, ah. I guess we missed it. The Times, who really is kind of allergic to writing about sports generally, is really not writing about sports now, except once in a while they'll write an article saying there is no, there are no sports, and that's just wrong, but it's the Times. But in any event, um, they did, uh, Dana, write an article about uh, a, a historic basketball game, the NCAA title game between Indiana State and Michigan State at the time when the stars of those two teams were as big as they could be, Michigan State featured uh, Magic Johnson, and Indiana State featured Larry Bird. Um, what was interesting to me about that championship game in retrospect, which was played in 1979, was that that's the game that's the highest-rated NCAA basketball game of all, all time. What does that mean? That means that more people watched that game, which was 41 years ago, really, than any game since, which is, seems counterintuitive because people love to say the NCAA tournament is Bigger and better each year. It was kind of small potatoes back then. No. <laughs> That's the highest greatest game of all time. Um, and I can tell you, I watched the game. It wasn't the greatest game in the world because it played out as you'd expect when a school like Indiana State, which is a small school, plays a school like Michigan State, which is mm -hmm. a big school. Michigan State won easily. But it, it was just um, shocking that that's the one. That's the record holder. Um you know what? Of course, we have no live basketball now. The Times had an article today about a substitute fad in their business section, not in their sports section. And that's about watching online gaming, which is, you know, it hasn't come to that for us yet. Maybe it will. But, uh, and we've mentioned this before. I don't mean to make fun of it. It's just yeah, the way of the world. Yeah, you did a thing about uh, how the gamers actually train yeah. for the games. Right. Well, this Physically. Is so, well, now they're actually getting the eyeballs on the screen, which is what matters. And uh, they have an article about a fellow named uh, Lupo, uh, Mr. Lupo, or Dr. Lupo, as Ben Lupo is called by the people in the gaming industry. He was an expert in Call of Duty Modern Warfare. Uh, and, you know, the short story is that uh, bazillions of people tune in to watch him sit in front of a game board. So he's a, a player? Yeah, he's a player. And uh, watch him play for hours at a time. Uh, and just, I'll just give you some numbers. I won't go into the details. I'm not terribly, uh, knowledgeable about the gaming industry itself, except that it's a big deal. Uh, the gaming industry generates more than $150 billion a year, billion dollars a year in revenue, a gaming, uh, more than double the global film 
and music industries combined. <laughs> okay, so if, if you were surprised by knowing that uh, they're plowing under vegetables, this would actually uh, surprise you even more, possibly. But you said those guys uh, are very intense when they're, they're playing. They hardly they leave play their seats. They it's don't leave their seat. They wear diapers. Well, uh, I'm not sure about that. Is that an exaggeration? That. I think it might be an exaggeration. Motorman's friend, perhaps? I think that's more likely. Yet. Okay. But, but they, they sit there 11 hours at a time. Right. And uh, maybe they get a short break and maybe they don't. But people tune in and watch them play. And as you said before, they have to go through some kind of physical training to allow them to do that at a high level and keep their energy up. So. All right. So a, an article that uh, This is online gaming, on online gaming to online learning, which is yes. a, a very okay. short Online link. learning yeah. is best in a supporting role. Yes. Well... Well, you know more about online learning I'm than, glad. than anybody here. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that, actually, uh, because uh, you wonder, uh, will online learning uh, put me out of a job? Well, yeah. You know? because, well, I should give as background. You've been going crazy over the last two weeks as uh, the art courses that you teach uh, have been shifted from, uh, from being in-person lectures to online learning, which means that you have to record lectures, and you also have to conduct classes by Zoom, which has been right. an enormous amount of work. Uh, and, I, you know, I'm interested in your impressions as to whether it's as effective as being there in person. Yeah, well, it's not just the lectures that are the work, really. It's the translating everything, all the, you know, assessments, yeah. exercises, quizzes, tests, you know, coming up with uh, kind of an engaging experience online. And uh, we, I've always, I've used online on an auxiliary basis mm -hmm. for years, but never, you know, for everything. And, uh, you know, uh, it's, it has been a little bit challenging. What's interesting is, and this is the reason why I worry that it would put me out of a job, is that um, online lectures are valuable. In fact, the, in this article in the uh, New York Times, they are referred to as something that's known in economics as non-rival goods, mm -hmm. which means they are not used up right. the more people use them. Right. Okay? So um, for this reason, everybody can listen to the very best lecturers at the same time. Right. doesn't increase you know? your cost. That so more there's people no see reason them. to yeah. have a lot of different lecturers, especially, you know, lesser ones. Yeah. Okay, so everybody can learn, uh, you know, we just need one or two great lectures in art history, and, and we're good. And, and what do I do? <laughs> uh, and this article says, well, still the learning, the lecture is only a fraction of the learning. Right. Okay, we would have, uh, the shift could have already happened. Remember a few years ago, those, I don't know how you say it, MOOCs? were popular. Yeah, sure. Okay, mass open online courses. Right. The idea that, you know, you could, zillions of people could be taking a course together. And it just didn't quite work because a lecture is only a fraction of the learning experience. And uh, they say that the best learning still involves a, a, you know, pretty close to, you know, pretty much smaller personal interaction. Between, between teacher and student. Uh, students depend on teachers for motivation, uh, for reinforcement, um, in ways that can't happen, uh, you know, in the you know, monodirectional situation of a sure. lecture. Mm -hmm. So that uh, they say, you know, there will 
you know, there should possibly still be classes that uh, are like, you know, you'd have the possibility to interact on a six to one basis or something like that and uh, get a full experience. I mean, I do think that to some extent my frustrations or, or my challenge with online learning is it's, um, you know, if I have a class of 25 people, once you get online, it's like you're dealing with 25 individuals. You're mm-hmm. teaching 25 different little classes and responding, right. um, critiquing on much more intimate level. So, you know. Um, well, well, that first of all, that reflects that your classes are somewhat engaged. If you, if you get that kind of communication going with more than one student, that's a good thing. Even well, though it's a lot of work for you. Well, that's true. But even when I'm not, yeah. that sort of, uh, you know, underlines the situation. Yeah. Because in class, I could possibly engage that person. I could know, notice right. that and person it, is not More quickly attention. and more easily. All right. And I, I'm confronting them right there. Yeah, I can write emails yeah. all I want. Somebody well, doesn't respond, they're but, not going to respond. So but, well, there's failures with that as well as successes. Well, let me make two yeah. observations. Number one is... I don't think an online lecture is as good as an in-person lecture anyway. I don't care if you're going to tell me this is the best online lecture. It's a difference when you see a play and you're sitting there in person watching the play. And if someone says you can stream the play at home, uh, the, the stream play at home is like one third the impact, uh, one third the value of being in person and watching the play. Okay. It's just a different right. thing. And yeah. the interaction right. uh, quality that's available there, even aside from the adjunct uh, support role you might play in groups of six. Uh, And number two is there are already lawsuits that are being brought now by students at certain schools. One I know is at uh, Drexel. Another one I think is University of Miami. Class actions by students saying that they're being charged tuition for the spring semester for online learning. They didn't sign up for online learning. They didn't pay tuition for online learning. Online learning is insufficient and inferior to what they signed up for. Mm -hmm. So... There you go. Well, I like to think so. Yeah. But, uh, you know, we'll see. I mean, I've always heard that you absorb five, maybe ten minutes Mm -hmm. out of a lecture, a straight lecture. Yeah, that's such a, you know, that's the kind of thing that you hear. I don't know what that really means, honestly. Well, you know, I sort of agree with that. Even when I hear a great lecture and I'm nodding and smiling saying, this is great, this is great, this is great. And then when I walk away from it, how much do I really retain? Yeah, but it's, you know, it's you know? like I heard yesterday, there was a quote. This is from Guido Sorducci, by the way, of uh, <laughs> Saturday Night Live. Father Guido Sorducci said, statistics say, and, you know, the great line statistics say, that people retain only uh, a total of five minutes of information from their four years of college. Uh, and uh, he uses it, and it's, and it's a uh, comical uh, routine. He used it to say, we're now uh, sponsoring the so-called five-minute university. We've distilled everything from the four <laughs> right. years of the five minutes. Well, but, you know, you see people say things like that, but I think it's just a little more complex than that. So uh, anyway, so. I would give yourself more credit. Um, all right. So we have a couple of obituaries, uh, some football players. Let me just say, first of all, that when we do obituaries, uh, it's not because, you know, this is an important person that died. We should mark this moment. Um, I guess that happens occasionally. And I'm not saying people aren't important, but it's because their stories are interesting. And their stories remind us of things or tell us things that happen and sort of resonate, at least with me, in a way that I say, gee, I didn't know that's the way it was, or I didn't know that actually happened. And that shows up in obituaries. Sometimes it shows up in obituaries that never showed up before because people didn't want to talk about it at the time. 
which is strange, but it's true. So Tom Dempsey died, and I remember Tom Dempsey well. Tom Dempsey uh, was a place kicker in the National Football League, and what's interesting about Tom Dempsey uh, is, is that he was born without toes on his right foot or fingers uh, on his right hand. Uh, the result is he wore a shoe uh, that, uh, you know, had, it's like a stump foot. I mean, mm, it, right? his foot yeah. is like one half the length of a normal foot, foot and it had a straight uh, border, if you will, okay. uh, that met in a perpendicular fashion with a football, which made him actually a more effective kicker. It's better mm. to kick with something close to your ankle than your toes. And as mm. a result, he was the greatest long-range kicker in the history of the National Football wow. League. Um, and I say that because uh, I can prove it. In 1970, which I guess I have to say is 50 years ago, he set the record in the NFL for the longest field goal, 63 yards. And when he came out to try this field goal, 63 yards, people were laughing. At that time, uh, they were just straight-on kickers. It was the only kind of kicker they had. And people rarely tried a 50-yard field goal. Yeah. Right? Uh, and then he comes out with a few seconds left in the game with the New Orleans Saints, his team down by a point to the Detroit Lions. And the guys on the other side are laughing. Hey, what are you mm -hmm. doing? What mm -hmm. are you doing? Just try mm -hmm. to throw in the end zone. And he goes and tries a 63-yard field goal, and he makes it. Uh -huh. And as a result, the Saints win the game. Uh, and that record held held until 2013, okay? Wow, wow. In, in which, where well, Matt Prater of Denver kicked one sixty four yards, and he did that because he did it in Denver, where the air is thin, mm. all right? So mm. it's it's like an asterisk thing. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, when he did the kick, it's so it was so strange to people and so bizarre that the uh, president of the Dallas Cowboys introduced a rule, which was passed by the NFL, that said future kickers who are less than have a full foot cannot do this kind of thing. Can't have a special shoe like Tom Dempsey. Well, I was wondering about the special shoe. Yeah, and that's number one. But number two, all this was moot because at that time, you just saw the introduction of soccer-style kickers right. in the NFL. And that changed everything. Changed everything because now you have yeah. guys kicking 50 and 60-yard field goals. And put straight on kickers like Dempsey out of business, and yet his record held for almost fifty years. So that was interesting. The other thing I thought was interesting was that Bobby Mitchell story that Bobby Mitchell passed away, and he was a running back who played for the Browns and played for the Redskins. And I, again, I remember him because he was a pain or thorn in the side of the Giants. He's quite an effective halfback. But here's something I didn't realize: he came to play for the Redskins in 1961. Uh, and what's interesting about that is the Redskins didn't have any black football players on the team. Really? Yeah, none in 1961, which is not 1927, okay? Right. Uh, and in fact, the only reason they had him in 1961 because Congress stepped in and made them have a black player. And the reason that happened was they're in Washington, D.C., and they were about to move to a new stadium, which was made, you know, partially in government land. They needed the cooperation of the federal government, and Stuart Udall the Secretary of the Interior said, you're not going to be able to do this unless you guys promise to use black players on the team. And it's for that reason that they brought in Bobby Mitchell. What, what you know, it, it's fascinating because the head of the, uh, the team at the time, uh, Marshall, was uh, his attitude. He said, look, we're the Southern team in the NFL, which I guess they were at the time, mm -hmm. and we recruit from Southern colleges, and we have fans who, who, who are Southerners. And it would be commercial suicide for us. And the Southern colleges we flew from, Alabama at that time, had no black players. Auburn had no black players. So, so we just reflect what's around here. Right. And, the, and the Congress said, no way. And that's the reason 
that the Redskins had black players. So I thought that was bizarre. In any event, bizarre. Well, you got to remember, even though we were alive then, yeah, we were peanuts. Yeah, I didn't realize what was going on. Yeah, I, no idea. Yeah, by the time we were older, things had changed a lot. Yeah, but things had changed before 1961 too, and yeah, but not in it's Washington D.C. It's yeah. it, it's uh, amazing. Yeah, I'll just tell you, Jim Brown started his career in the late 50s, so you know, it wasn't like there were there were a lot of black players. Washington there, but, was late to come to the party. Yeah. Um, next article, title, What I Miss the Most is Swimming, Hmm. which applies to me as well. I mean, we're getting outside. Right. We're walking. Oh, a lot. We're we're riding bikes. Right. Uh, But uh, a big part of my exercise regime is swimming. Mm -hmm. Even in the winter, I swim at least uh, one day a week. And uh, I swim because... Uh, it, it's it seems great for me physically, right. but it also seems great for me mentally and emotionally. Mm-hmm. And uh, this article written by uh, Bonnie Sui, uh, excuse my pronunciation, T-S-U-I, who is also the author of Why We Swim, uh, so, you know, kind of agrees with that uh, and describes... Uh, uh, being suspended in water, moving yet floating, ever in a little danger of sinking. Swimming is an antidote for the existential anxiety from which I suffer, she says. Um, and she goes on and, you know, to uh, kind of describe in pretty lyrical terms all the wonderful effects of swimming. Uh, she talks to long-distance swimmer Lynn Cox, who says swimming is like a drug. Who needs psychedelics when you can just go for a swim in the ocean? Mm -hmm. Uh, That's how profoundly she feels the swimming affects uh, uh, your body. The The rhythm of swimming lulls your body, which seems to keep moving on its own, which I think kind of releases your brain to do other things yeah. and, uh, you know, to have, uh, you know, well, in fact, um, I guess the, uh, cognitive scientists, uh, say that, uh, there's, um, uh, what do they say? We experience a drop in heart rate and blood pressure and an increase in alpha wave activity. Those are the brave wavelengths associated with relaxation boosted serotonin, as well as creative thinking. Well, first of all, uh, yeah, so that's like, it's like a sensory deprivation situation, right? Which gives you, gives rise to a meditative state is the way I feel about it when I swim. But, and so I, well, that jives with what, what you're saying. But there's another thing I'll inject because I'm not as good a swimmer as you are. Yeah. You're a better swimmer and we go swim in the ocean. And in a way I would never do by myself, but since I'm yeah. with you, I do it. Um, there's a part of me that requires a suspension of disbelief when I'm in there. I'm saying to myself, gee, this looks a little dicey being out here in the ocean. And you have to give yourself to the situation and say, forget about the way I normally think of things. I know there are powerful forces, those being the waves. I know I'm in very deep water. I know that God knows what kind of fish are in here or what kind of uh, sea monsters are in here. And I'm just going to relax <laughs> And I'm going to swim, 
and you have to just accept it. And that I think there's some benefit in that. That uh, puts you. Yeah, in a I think that's state. true. Yeah. yeah, but I thought you were going to say that all you're trying to do is survive. Yeah, there's a little you bit know? of that. So when you're totally concentrating on just surviving, there's benefit to that. You, you, yeah, you forget about everything else. You forget about all those little. Um, right. details of life that are bothering you. Well, like, yes. It frees up your brain. Let's just say I don't go with the lower heart rate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, they say, uh, you know, uh, sometimes it does, it will result in faster heartbeat, heartbeat, um, increased circulation, more blood and oxygen getting to the muscles and the brain. But they also say even looking at water makes you feel better. Yeah, I, I, which I think is true I, because I how many times you go for a walk by the shore and you just stare out at the ocean, yeah, yeah. and how crazed are people to have a house by yeah, the water? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, I I totally agree with this idea, and I'm anxious to get back. No, uh, you'll be to back. You'll be back before you know it. Swimming again, but you know, I have felt that way forever, and I think I've said before on this uh, podcast that swimming just seems to the rhythm of it. You know, and the rhythmic breathing mm-hmm. to me is a lot like yoga and other yeah, forms it, of meditation. It, it, it's a meditative state. Also, I think it's fairly healthful because you are focused on breathing. You're yeah. breathing fairly deeply, right? You know, and you're using up all that air, right? Um, and I think that uh, helps to detoxify your lungs mm-hmm. to some extent, from what I've heard. Yeah. So, um, yeah, swimming. Oh, you'll I'm be missing it. You'll be swimming. Before you know it, honey. Um, I hope so. Well, there was an odd thing about this fellow, John Davies. This is about swimming, too, who was the judge in the Rodney King case, if you recall, uh, the fellow who got beaten up by the L.A. police when they did a second retrial as to whether there was a violation of his civil rights. And that's the headline in terms of his obituary. But it turns out that uh, there was just an odd thing about him. He was Australian, and he was in the Olympics in 1952 in Helsinki, swimming for Australia. John Davies. John Davies. And here's the most interesting thing about it. He was a breaststroker who would have invented a what they call a butterfly-like breaststroke, which I guess was considered legal. And uh, it was an innovation, and that's the stroke in which he won the gold medal, the breaststroke. But what's fascinating to me is that when he came to the Olympics in Helsinki in 52, he slept 20 hours a day. That's right, 20 hours a day, and practiced his experimental butterfly breaststroke for some three hours a day as he prepared and then won the gold medal. And they say here, and they talk about his trainer, my experience with John Davies illustrates the principle that it is better, far better, to rest too much than to train too much and too hard. In final preparation. Well, swimmers train like crazy. Right. You know, and every once in a while you do read an article that says it is crazy. Yeah. The overtraining is just, uh, it's just a tradition. It's not uh, proven, you know, effective. But whatever happened to his crazy stroke? I think Did that's... they outlaw it? No, I, I, I might gather that's the accepted approach now. I think what he invented is the breaststroke of the way it's done right now. I don't know. I didn't have... They, they're more interested in being a judge uh, than a that, swimmer. That picture looks a lot like butterfly. That's not what they do well, maybe, in the water now. Maybe his gold medal should be taken All right, away. A little more research, Daniel. Next All right. time you report on these things. I was okay. to me sleeping twenty hours. You a did. Day. I know you didn't even know that anybody you know who had who was a lawyer could swim. <laughs> yeah. That is that what you're telling me? He's Australian. Yeah. How do you sleep for 20 hours a day? I don't I mean, know. He must have really trained hard for those three hours. Yeah. And what's he doing the other hour? Hour. Eating? They don't say. Okay. 
Uh, no, that uh, you know we had talked before. Just uh, you know, I, I happen to see an article, another article about the dairy restaurant book that's uh, been distributed now, and it's written by Ben Catcher, and apparently it has um, illustrations in it. And so this is a book bemoaning the loss of, of dairy uh, restaurants. Traditional New Jewish York, New York dairy restaurants. Dairy restaurants and it was, where, I, yeah, and I was struck by some of these ads, and I only read one of them, but they're all written in kind of a funny, interesting way. Um, they have uh, this one here for uh, Maybach's Dairy Restaurant in 1919. It says, Maybach's is now open, this is the ad, is now open for business. The best fresh foods served at moderate prices. All that we bake, cook, and fry is with the best fresh butter. Careful observers of dietary laws and cleanliness will by us be satisfied. You know? Okay, so they can use butter because they're not serving meat. Exactly right. Okay. And they have a similar couple of ads. I won't read you all the ads, but it's a definite New York style of talking. And then Granger showed me something, which was an article uh, by a woman named Deborah Tannen. Well, this comes up because last night we watched... Saturday Night Seder. Yes. Which was a Zoom style production mm-hmm. of a, you know, sort of a comedic uh, presentation of a Seder mm-hmm. uh, by various uh, television entertainers and, and various Broadway entertainers, entertainers as okay. much as anything, honestly. And yeah. there was a variety of pseudo Jewish accents right. being used to. Present some of the. Uh, I, I had no trouble with the accents. I mean, I thought the. Oh, well, some of them were quite goofy. Really? Pretty exaggerated. Well, the woman who started. By the, Jewish people, exaggerating. Oh, you know, oh is that right? Comic effect. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, maybe that was right. There was one funny. You and I have talked about the funniest bit in it, which is the woman who, who's playing, talking about her mother as the hostess for her Passover, and then explained her mother going crazy about this is the last Passover Seder she's going to host. Nobody appreciates what she does. This is the absolute last time, et cetera. It was really, really funny. But so Granger passed along to me an article that appeared in the International Journal of the Sociology of Language by a woman named Deborah Tannen, who's written a number of best-selling books about language. And the focus of this article is New York Jewish style of talking, really New York style of talking as exemplified uh, by Eastern European Jews, and I bring it up, you know, in my own defense. To she explains these are the qualities of that kind of talk, and uh, see if any of this sounds familiar to you. Uh, number one topic: prefer personal topics, shift topics abruptly, introduce topics without hesitation and persistence. If new topic is not immediately picked up reintroduces it and and repeatedly if necessary. Two, genre, tell more stories. Three, pacing, faster rate of speech, uh, pauses avoided, faster turn-taking with other participant, cooperative overlap and participatory listenership. And finally, uh, market voice quality, uh, strategic within turn pauses. So those are the qualities of sociologists. What was the last one? Strategic intern pauses. That was a strategic oh, intern pauses. pauses. Yes. But the bottom line about this is, is this. And what she says is that um, what you have to understand about this style of talking is that when someone's interrupting you, when a New York Jewish person is interrupting you, it's not showing a lack of interest 
or desire to take over the conversation. That's the way they show interest in what right. you're saying. They're participating, and right. that's the way they participate. Right. But in other parts of the country, they no. don't get that. No, they don't get that. No, and that it's is considered quite rude. Exactly. And that's why you New Yorkers are always <laughs> exactly so rather a little bit on the rude side. But, you know, just uh, as you're reading that, yeah. it's just I'm having these flashbacks from all the Jewish New York comedians on the Ed Sullivan show. Right. You know, which seems so exotic right. to me growing up in Maryland mm -hmm. and seeing these guys talk this way uh, and uh, kind of. You know, describes them perfectly. Great. So I feel like I come by this honestly. And that, but that you're absolutely well, right. Her, that's what she writes in the article. She says, you know, in other parts of the country, they don't like this. Yeah. And they think when you interrupt them, that means you're not interested in what they have to say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Odd. It's, it's, it's almost <laughs> impossible to explain. Okay. So, and, you know, I don't want to belabor this whole thing of finding things to do online since we can't have uh, regular actual things to do mm -hmm. but there was a, a fun article in the travel section you know it's with great uh, sadness that uh, i read the travel section because you're wondering what's going to happen to the travel industry right after this mm -hmm. i mean we've got some real challenges mm -hmm. uh, ahead um restaurant industry travel industry etc but uh there is a list in the new york times of uh a bunch of uh, great sounding uh travel podcasts, uh, including what, what they say is kind of a mishmash from the national parks. Uh, but there's one called the Bowery Boys that strolls through uh, New York um, in miscellaneous uh, neighborhoods, Greenwich Village, Harlem, Lower East Side. Uh, that sounds like that would be fun. You know, you always read about those neighborhood uh, tours mm -hmm. all around New York. So it'd be uh, fun to just uh, clue in to one. Uh, also, a um, one called Dream of Italy. <laughs> I mean, that's what I'm doing right now, well, dreaming we, we, of We were thinking Italy. of going to Italy, but uh, that had to be yeah, postponed. So this is with somebody named uh, Kathy McCabe, host of PBS, Dream of Italy uh, series, and who has guests uh, like, you know, Francis Mays, author of the novel Under the Tuscan Sun. Um, so that might be fun to listen to. And uh, also they say that Good old Rick Steves, you know, that who had a travel show on PBS mm -hmm. that we all know quite well. Okay. Um, yeah, he has quite the uh, following mm -hmm. and a long career. And, uh, you know, uh, but anyway, he's apparently is also very um, engaging uh, on the podcast alone. So that would be something... That's called Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves. And then the, also in the arts, uh, arts and leisure section, they happen to mention Mobituary. Oh, yeah, Which yeah, yeah. is a podcast yeah. with uh, Moraka. Right. Of uh, all kinds of people. Um, not just, you know, recent uh, um, departures. Uh, historical figures. But historical also. figures, yeah. uh, you know, uh, filling in the blanks. And he's got, uh, he's kind of an interesting guy with a fun sensibility. So I think. Yeah, he's, uh, he's, he's an odd guy. We actually, actually saw him in a show. Do you remember that? Um, yes. We saw him in the San Francisco production of, of The Ice Thing. Yeah. But, you know, um, let me just mention some of the people he talks about. Yeah. Lawrence Welk. Oh, God. Really? That would be fun. Oh, I don't know. 
I can't imagine. That, you know, he must be doing it because there's something interesting to hear. One about can only him. hope. And yes. a one, and a two, yeah. and um, Ada Lovelace. You know, the famous. You know, the woman we like to say invented computers. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Thomas Paine, Billy Carter. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, did you have anybody else on the list? I don't want to... No, that's all. That's all well, you know, there is a... Speaking of... Give them a try. I mean, after you've listened to all 167 podcasts yeah. by Tamsin and Dan, you might, uh, you know, have some time for these other you know, podcasts. They, in the NFL, there's a certain trade, which is called the Lawrence Welk trade. No. <laughs> if what you, does that mean? If you trade your first round draft pick, like you have the top pick in the draft, and you're able to garner and exchange... Uh, picks of various rounds, you know, in exchange, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they say, well, what do you want in the trade? You say, well, I want the Lawrence Welk trade, a one, a two, a three. Oh, okay. There you go. All right. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> there can't be three people alive who know what that means. Uh, I'm one of the three. Uh, Al Kaline passed away. Al, you know, he's like the best ball player you never heard of. Now, you know a lot about baseball. Yeah, you don't say that, but you do. And you weren't familiar with but Al But I came Kaline. late to the party. Nah, Al Kaline. We, we did not watch he was baseball a, or even listen to it on the A contemporary of Willie Mays and, and Mickey Mantle and those guys. And the fact of the matter is, he was right there with those guys. He's that big a star, but he played in Detroit. He had 3,000 hits, which is the, one of the magical benchmarks in Major League Baseball. He came up the age of 20, hit 340 and led the league, the youngest player to lead the league in hitting. Uh, he was an all-star 16 years in a row. I mean, it's crazy. He yeah. was a huge star. But because he was with the Detroit Tigers and because that team wasn't successful, he wasn't terribly well-known. He also wasn't a flashy guy. He wasn't a huge home run hitter, but he hit 399, and that's something. But he's very reflective. And they have an article in the Times that, uh, about an interview that, that was done some time ago when he was about a 10, or, 10 or 12 years into his career. And... Uh, in the interview, I won't read everything about it, but it's not your average interview, especially as interviews were done in the 1970s. And he reflects on, you know, what is he really accomplishing for society being a ball player? He said, what am I doing? Uh, he says, you know, the best I can do in terms of contributing, you know, to society as a whole, think of myself, this is K-Line, as an entertainer. And he compares himself with people like Richard Burton or Marlon Brando, actors at the time. And he says, but those guys have a greater range. They can do comedy, musical, drama. I just play ball, but I guess I just have to, my consolation is that people come to the ballpark and forget about their troubles. He's a pretty thoughtful guy. Yeah. Uh, but he's a great player and a great superstar, just not in a major media market. And finally, Moore Trucker died. Now, Moore Trucker, this only means something to uh, probably primarily uh, boys who were in their teenagers uh, during the 1960s. In the early 1970s, he was uh, a cartoonist for Mad Magazine, and uh, he, so you know his work well. Oh yeah, oh yeah. yeah. Uh, he was a uh, you, know, you can call him a caricaturist, and if I show you, you can see by the style, he's able to really capture people in pen and ink drawings. But not well, you would just open a Mad Magazine, and you knew yeah what was by he, him. Yeah, and it was particularly responsible. He did some stuff outside of. Uh, the magazine. He did the ad here, the graphic ad for American Graffiti. He did a cover of Time magazine. But he was responsible for one thing more than anything, and that was Mad Magazine would regularly do uh, parodies of movies. Uh, mm-hmm. And they would, you know, and they were 
Look, if you were 13 years old, they were unbelievably funny. And they were often of movies that you weren't even old enough to see and you were wondering about. But you got to see the Mad Magazine parody and you got a sense of it. And it was So they were graphic, they were illustrations. Yeah. Uh, right. They like have a, one here. They would tell the story. Here's a TV a... show. That's Perry Mason there. Okay. And you can see, yeah, he'd be telling a story, but they'd do like a funny bit on it. And they'd, yeah. they'd give it a phony name. It was satire. Yeah. Uh, and uh, he did one when he was there. His first one was the Perry Mason. They hadn't even had this category, and when they learned how well he could draw, they said, let's make this a regular thing. He ended up doing 238 of these things okay. uh, over the years. And what, they have a funny piece here at the end of the obituary. Uh, they do say that the Michael J. Fox told Johnny Carson that he knew he made it in show business when Mort Drucker drew him in terms of a, a Mad Magazine parody. But the funny story is that... Uh, they say not everyone was so pleased. Mad did a 1981 parody of The Empire Strikes Back, which is you know, a Star Wars movie, and Lucasfilm Legal Department, uh, George Lucas's organization, uh, sent him a cease and desist letter demanding that the issue be recalled. And here's the quote. Mad replied by sending a copy of another letter they had received the previous month from George Lucas himself, offering to buy the original artwork for the Empire parody <laughs> and comparing Mort Drucker to Leonardo da Vinci. <laughs> Say, George Lucas knew Mr. Drucker's work well. He had commissioned one of Mr. Drucker's classic multi-character pileups as the poster for his first hit American Graffiti. Uh, and, of course, later, Drucker illustrated mad send-up of American Graffiti called American Confetti. So, in any event, I know that's not for everybody, but uh, Mort Drucker was great. So uh, all right. that's all we have on yeah. Easter Sunday. Happy yeah. Easter. Is Happy that the right Easter. term? Yeah, we got more chocolate eggs to be eating, so let's get on it. All right. All right. I'm uh, with this you. is Tamson Granger. And Dan Abuhoff. With Tamson and Dan, read the paper. We'll be back again next week. Next week.